0: Thank you for tuning in. Will the gig economy ever take hold in AEC? What will the future of work look like? And what if we could get a glimpse of that future today? Well, we can. Our guest today on the podcast is Peter McRae, principal and founder of McRae Architecture. And in this episode, we dig into the virtual model he has pioneered and used to build a significant national architectural practice for nearly a decade. Yes, a decade. And it's a practice that he can and has operated from anywhere in the world. As you listen, you'll not only be impressed, you'll be inspired, and you won't be able to look at work or your business success in the same way. So without any further delay, let's do it.
1: The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today we'll be speaking with Peter McRae principal and founder of McRae Architecture, and we'll be talking about building a national virtual practice. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thanks so much. Well, I can't wait to dive into this topic today, but before we do, um, or as we do, can you share with our listeners a bit about yourself, your career, and what brought you to starting a virtual practice over nine years ago after the Great Recession?
2: Sure. Uh, My career path was relatively traditional, Pete, for 30 plus years. That all changed in 2011 when to start my own practice, I parted ways with my previous company where I'd served as president and partner after it was ravaged by the Great Recession, as you said. My goal was to start a firm without any seed cash. I thought it possible to have a full service national architecture practice with zero fixed overhead. Uh, that's no rent, no equipment, no payroll, just a laptop with everything located in the cloud. And it's worked like a charm. Uh, so after the Great Recession, I had a thought. If necessity is the mother of invention, this model may just be its offspring.
0: Right. Well, that and there's a lot to unpack in that. And that's going to be the feature of our conversation today. You mentioned the traditional practice. So you at, as the Great Recession started, you were at a firm. Could you share, like, what was the nature of that firm, sort of size and type of work you did? And, and is that the firm you were with for most of your career? Um, or have you been with larger companies or mostly smaller practices?
2: Well, um, the idea came to me at my previous firm when I noticed that although they were located in a studio, the staff worked more or less virtually. With the president located in the corner office and a big bullpen containing all of the staff sitting in their 10 by 10 spaces, look, it's the same work environment as when I started in the profession over 40 years ago. But instead of having a set of drawings rolled out on a throw table at a drafting desk, the staff wear earbuds and toss electronic files back and forth to the client, to the engineers and to each other. I mean, it's crazy. I was 58 years old when I had the idea of practicing architecture virtually, but even in 2011, I suspected that all the tools necessary to work in this fashion were readily available for free online, such as GoToMeeting, Skype, Dropbox, WeTransfer, ShareFile, etc. and now the hero of the COVID-19 crisis, Zoom. Look, I've worked in, in many different size firms. Uh, from large corporate firms to uh, small partnerships and even uh, sole practitioner firms, uh, where I was an employee uh, when there were only a few people there, uh, and and I have actually run this virtual business as if I were the CEO of a large A and E firm uh, from my previous experience.
0: So and you, and you had done that. So you had built. a a traditional practice so yeah so the the, as we're talking about the virtual practice i mean that's built on the almost 40 years of being in the traditional the 30 years before that being in the traditional space with all the sort of the constraints that a lot of our listeners including myself are listening you know listening to this we, we sort of have that traditional model in our mind but but that's where you came from so despite sort of learning the traditional model you were able to see, okay, well, maybe there's a virtual way to do this.
2: Yeah, that's right. In in regard to the AEC industry, the opportunities to benefit employers and staff, such as financial, lifestyle, advancement, et cetera, they differ dramatically. Uh, there haven't been many win-win scenarios within most professional service business practices. So in, you so, so have... Yeah. So, well, okay. So
0: in that tradition, so, okay, I'm thinking because I come at it from a traditional perspective um, and we've had conversations where I think it's fascinating. And and you've mentioned, you know, the, the, in the traditional practice, there's, there's not a lot of win-wins. And so that's maybe one of the business practice flaws that the virtual model sort of works out of the system. When you talk about, the fact that there might not be many win-win scenarios um, in the traditional practice.
2: What, what do you mean by that? Um, So I'm going to explain it in reference to my virtual architectural practice model. In this model, there are no employees, all collaborators are independent contractors who have, I have mentored myself to establish their own businesses contracted by me in a similar fashion to the engineering consultants. So unintentionally, my virtual architectural practice model has become, as coined by uh, the NCARB about our practice, an incubator of solopreneurs. So there's the first benefit is is training immediately um, mid-career staff on how to own their own businesses and be independent. Also, the virtual architectural practice model is ideal for millennial and Gen Z professionals who prefer flexible work arrangements allowing for a healthy work-life balance. So parents can raise children while working from home and the outdoors crowd can go for a hike or a swim in the middle of the day. So here's another important benefit. Unlike my generation, the baby boom generation, these following generations don't intend to work themselves to death and put their personal lives at risk. This model allows that. And then the model also addresses issue of gender equality and pay equity because my collaborators' individual fees are all negotiated and contracted for on a project-by-project basis. Therefore, this group, male or female, uh, get to, they learn how to negotiate fees successfully for themselves and basically get to know their own value in the marketplace. So in that sense, so kind of
0: unpacking that a little bit, uh, mention it, you know, the the model, what that offers for the people, the, the practitioners within the model, you mentioned, the, you know, millennials and Gen Zs wanting flexibility. I mean, in my work, I mean, I see that more and more with boomers and Xers who are looking for that type of flexibility, you know, who are mid-career mid professionals or, uh, or north of that that are looking for time flexibility, financial flexibility and professional freedom. And, you know, I know what I want to do and I am really good at this type of thing and I want to be able to do that and, and not some of the other things. So, I see that as being um, a benefit to this model. But, I, but so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, are you seeing people from across generations being
2: attracted to a model like this? My, my very short answer to your observation about uh, baby boomers and in, more end-of-career individuals wanting flexibility as well is, uh, is that uh, they've learned from the younger people because it wasn't inherent in in my generation, we all worked ridiculous hours as we built our careers uh, to the detriment, a lot of times, to our to our young families. And uh, secondly, I think that uh, after the COVID crisis and and firms uh, having to work from home, all of a sudden discovered there was an alternate way to uh, uh, to not waste time commuting to work. Uh, to not uh, uh, be a nine to five, have to be there, and then work extra after the fact, uh, it was possible to weave in a personal life within the hours necessary to get work done and accomplish both very well.
0: Mm, yeah, so really a lifestyle shift um, in that is sort of the fulfillment of work-life integration not even, you know, beyond the work-life balance. I want to dig into something else you said. So with the, with the practice, I mean, specifically the model that you designed has no employees. Um, and so none of those sort of uh, issues that come with employees, but can we dig a little deeper into that? So in the traditional practice, there are employees and you've, been, you've run a business, you've been a leader in a business. What are some of the problems that we run into just big picture? Architectural engineering businesses, when you have employees, what are some of those problems we run into that can be avoided with a virtual model?
2: Well, let's start with the way that the teams are put together in the virtual model. So the basically what I've done in assembling teams to deliver projects to clients is I have shotgun the architectural delivery portion of the project and separated it into the team members necessary to deliver uh, the architectural side of the services successfully, and then simply contracted with those individuals as independents rather than placing employees. So the architectural project team selection is driven by each project's unique requirement for talent, Uh, design, project management, CAD, etc. So my collaborators are all independent consultants, as I've said. I treated the virtual architectural practice as a design problem and began to think of the FIRM model as being diagrammatically similar to the World Wide Web uh, with its many nodes and uber connectivity. So in the case of my company, I conceived of this World Wide Web diagram as nothing but a flat grayed out plane because I think in three dimensions then imagined a new project floating above the plane with its specific unique requirements for nodes of design and technical talent and the associated specific relationships between them to successfully complete the work. These project specific talent nodes along with their problem mandated interconnectivity light up and the project team thus activated completes the work. Then the project moves on after it's completed and a new project floats overhead of the grayed out plane where the nodes from the previous project have already gone back into the background. The new project uh, has its own unique talent and connectivity requirements, different from the first project. Those nodes light up on the plane below and the new project team is similarly assembled along with the specific relationships necessary for successful project delivery. So each of these participants, uh, project manager, interior designer, CAD technician, etc., performs the task, this is key, that they've decided and declared they both do the best and enjoy the best, and they're not placed in positions to perform the work for which they're not suited just because they happen to be on the employee payroll. So even though projects drive the composition of my firm at any given time. My firm is never a fixed entity. It, it completely changes depending on the projects that are uh, being um, worked on at the time. This has proven to be a great benefit to our clients because they get role fulfillment experts composing their project teams rather than whoever I have to place on them. It's worked out really well well i mean and that's so that description so what was going on in my mind as you
0: were talking um is it's just it's fundamentally a whole different mindset because as the as the business owner or the principal the practitioner uh, or, or or you know principal sort of developing the organization and developing the firm you're not thinking of i need to constantly feed my people and i need to you know who's busy who's not busy what project what's the best assignment um you're thinking of the project, so you're the you're the owner of the company and you're really focused on the project and you're focused on getting the best team not just available but you know available in your organization but available anywhere so I mean to me it's a whole fundamental shift that you're not worried about feeding the machine constantly you're actually just saying, "Here are my projects. how best do I?" fulfill them with people who love what they do and are really good at it so that I can complete the project for the client. I mean, am I misinterpreting that sort of the simple model?
2: The only part you didn't reinforce was the bonus to the client. They get a custom selected team that is based upon the unique requirements of their project. So they really get something that they can't get from a traditional firm, especially from a small firm, because you're
0: fielding a team of A players. I mean, assuming that you're you're able to find like all the practitioners to fill the roles of your projects, you're able to field a team of A players that are best suited, not just most available, not just who you have.
2: I mean, yeah. So let's of talk about that a little bit. So in building my firm of independent consultants. From the beginning, I had a ready-made talent pool composed of good employees that my firm had laid off as it dwindled after the recession from approximately 20 people down to six. Now get this, four partners and only two staff, totally unsustainable. So two years after starting the practice, the pool of potential participants actually increased with the passing of the Affordable Care Act, uh, because prior to that, the only people who could participate were those that had spouses, for example, that had benefits, right? So as soon as the Affordable Care Act came out, then anybody could play. Uh, and it lifted the worry of high health care premiums from the contractors. So today, I actually have pages of potential collaborators who have discovered my company. I haven't sought them out. They found out about me and contacted me. Uh, And they're all sorted by their specific expertise, right? Project managers, designers, draftsmen, interior designers, et cetera. So I know that I'm not saying anything new to most of you. But with today's social networking, as proof of what I just said with my potential collaborators finding me, it's just not that hard to be found. So, by embracing a social media mindset, I do virtual networking and blog posting at flexible times. And amazingly, I have not had to do any traditional marketing for over eight years now since initiating our virtual practice. We truly have gone viral.
0: So, and that, and that sort of adds to the no, not only no overhead of, of uh, employees, but no overhead of, of having to, to market yourself too. Have you ever not been able to field a team or had difficulty fielding a team for a specific assignment?
2: I know it sounds crazy. The answer is absolutely never. And yeah. in addition to that, this should be interesting to your listeners. In nine years now, I've only had one participant who uh, – uh, didn't perform as well in, in the role that uh, he wanted to be placed in, uh, and so it was very simple. I just didn't send out a a request for a proposal uh, with a scope of work to him again. But guess what? We've stayed close friends. We've we've collaborated just just talking about business. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, never got his feelings hurt. Never got fired. Just hasn't participated again, but everybody else—let's say it's roughly twenty people all told—they've, uh, they're all still in the game, which is really great.
0: Hmm. I want to, I want to drill down a little bit into your marketing piece too. Um, so, w- what, what have you done to get the word out? I mean, I, you know, I know, you know, I originally heard of you through a, you know, an industry article that talked about the virtual architectural firm, and I dug into that, and then it actually it correlated with me working with a couple of clients on strategic planning looking at you know sort of the virtual employees and so I was doing research to sort of um, uh, be able to support those initiatives and I found you and there were some articles and I know you you worked in um, AIA circles and given a lot of presentations is there anything is that the extent of it or have you done more as far as getting
2: the word out about what you're doing? Uh, the fact is I'm licensed in 38 states, so I have a long suit in retail and restaurant environmental branding, uh, which includes uh, prototype uh, application to shell space, right? Pretty pretty understandable market. Uh, so I had projects across the country for decades prior to initiating the virtual practice. And so I just picked up from there. Uh, but what I what I made a decision on was that I wasn't going to chase money anymore. And to that end, I had always heard like everybody else for every business that cash flow is king. Uh, and so most successful businesses find ways to establish a constant, reliable influx of income. And I wanted to figure out a way to achieve this in a national architectural practice. So, Uh, five of my teams actually generate that constant and dependable cash flow. So today, our company is composed of six teams, five of which are each headed by a mid-career professional, and these team managers are located in four different states and five different cities. Uh, Teams one through four serve national restaurant accounts. Team five does TI interior work for corporate regional headquarters. Say, for example, ADT Security wants to have a Midwest regional headquarters uh, located in Chicago. So they will take down an entire floor of a high rise. It's that kind of work. And it's on behalf of a large international conglomerate located in Australia. Uh, And then Team Six does one of a kind projects. Uh, That's for a variety of clients and building types Uh, But it's the special stuff. And I personally manage this team. And why do I choose to do that? Uh, At my stage in my career, this is the fun stuff. And I don't think we're limited to just small projects either. We've recently collaborated on projects as large as $30 million. So there doesn't seem to be a size limit on projects that can be done virtually as well. Uh, from day one, our marketplace was unbounded. Uh, Pete, it was simultaneously local, regional, national, and global. So unlike a bricks and mortar practice which almost has to declare that they're a city firm, a state firm, a regional firm, or and then that's about as far as they can grow brand wise in a bricks and mortar world before they have to then uh, locate a branch office within a new region. So they'll go from being a Midwest firm that now has a mid-Atlantic uh, branch or a, West, a Midwest coast branch or, or Pacific Northwest branch. You follow me? Right. Uh, from day one, because we just started this virtually, we were unbounded.
0: And how did you get your first client? I mean, obviously, 38 years in the business and, you know, being a president of a firm. So you had a lot of connections. Right. Did a lot of those transfer over? I mean, how did you go about getting your first client or a group of clients?
2: It was was very simple. Uh, With the permission of the other partners, I was able to take the last remaining uh, restaurant national program with me. Uh, they really didn't want to do that work anyway. They they like doing a lot of public work, and I like the private sector. And uh, and the project manager that was serving that uh, account on behalf of the company uh, was one of the last people that I had to let go from the company. You know that if you're downsizing, your you your good people go last. And he happened to be located with a 45-minute one-way. Uh, commute uh, from Columbus. Now, for big cities, that sounds like he's right next door, but that's a long commute to get to Columbus, Ohio. So, he was on the road for an hour and a half every day, and I just simply said, stay put. Just stay where you are, and let's see how this works, and no looking back. It worked like a charm, and we just continued for nine years. And again, so that's 2011,
0: Yes. So, so you're you know, coming out of 38 years of a practitioner or traditional practice saying, you know what, let's try this virtual thing. You just stay where you are and you can manage my new projects and you just go from there because you just had this vision of a virtual practice.
2: And from how- day one, I said to him, you're no longer an employee. Uh, here's how you set up your own business, just like I did. Uh, let me know when you have it in place and then I'll contract with your corporate entity. And that was it.
0: And then, so, but you, you, you had said that you have mentored um, maybe not just this first person, but other people to get into business, so everything is on the up and up. What, what does that mentoring look like? Just advising them on you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be an official contractor, or have you done any other type of mentoring?
2: No, I mean I've done tons of mentoring in my career, but this, this specifically was. Because it only took me one week to set my practice up. That's the other amazing thing. Literally seven days from the day I told my partners I was leaving, Friday to Friday. And in that time, I had uh, my lawyer set up a, um, a federal ID number, tax ID number, uh, got licensed in the state, um, um, visited with my accountant, found out that all I really needed to do to run my business was... Uh, uh keep two spreadsheets, money in money out, and send him what he called snapshots or you know uh, PDF files at the end of every quarter and he sends me the tax filing and that's it nine years now with a national firm, and that's all the accounting that there there is to it. Um, uh, and then um, uh, getting um, a domain right on the internet followed by uh, a website. Uh, simply using nothing but GoDaddy, you know, about as cheap as it gets and uh, printed some business cards. And that was it. In a week, I was up and running. And that's how I mentored the kids as I call them. Uh, here, you know, here's the project you're getting ready to get started on. Do all this stuff right now and let me know when you have it in place and off we go. It was pretty easy so do you do you know of any other
0: virtual practitioners again so it's almost a decade ago but um the, the the world of the gig economy you know people understand that now not so much back then but so do you know of any virtual practitioners in the architecture engineering space and and if so do they operate
2: any differently uh, actually i've heard of many different versions of virtual practice uh, some with a small physical presence say within a co-working uh venue uh, some with partnering collaborators. So it's it's really not a partnership, but it's pretty close to that. You know what I'm saying? And then others utilizing uh, domestic-based labor pools. I'm sure you've heard of that. Uh, there are now pools of architectural labor that are available, uh, you know, designers, CAD, uh, building information modeling, experts, that kind of stuff. And then of course, as well as offshoring. Offshoring was... Something that was getting popular with large firms back in the uh, late '90s and and 2000s, uh, and um, uh, and so there there are some virtual firms that that stayed with that model, right? Um, and this is because in in virtual architectural or virtual engineering practice, you can have both employees and collaborating contractors, or you can have a mix of both. You can have either or a mix of both. Uh, And I'm pleased to say that today, there are many uh, virtual practices that have strictly mimicked my company uh, in its completely virtual model, right? Uh, We don't have a hybrid, right? We have a completely virtual practice and many of those have been quite successful. I'm happy to say.
0: Mm, so, let, okay, actually, a little bit. What, what are those domestic-based labor um, pools? What What are they? Is that Is that like a networking group yes. that you know That's people exactly get into? Exactly
2: right. You hit it right on the head. It's a It's a group that have found each other. They found each other virtually. They've set up a network, and they have put themselves out there as a resource for firms. Uh, and that, and they were uh, particularly successful when the marketplace was so hot just before the crisis, right? Uh, when for, uh, traditional bricks and mortar firms were having a hard time finding uh, employees in their local market, which is another problem with being identified as a local practice. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, those labor uh, pools that had formed nationally, became popular as an alternative to, to offshoring because, you know, the companies in India, the companies in uh, Indonesia, the companies in the Philippines were doing that for at least a decade prior. Right. Uh, but there were issues uh, uh, with those. And so these networked uh, domestic pools tried to uh, solve that.
0: What about from an ownership perspective as, uh, you know, like sort of, Principals or owners of firms. Do you have a networking group, or is it just through AIA and other groups that you're able to find other people? I mean, is is there? I mean, is it becoming a big enough thing where there are a group of other owners that you could just kind of share stories with and connect
2: with? Um, since um, 20, let's say 2015, when. NCARB first published their article about my company. And that's where they call... And NCARB being the... uh, NCARB, the entity that licenses... uh, It's a a single source for architects to go through as they go through their licensing process, right? Uh, In my case, they hold a file on me that has all of my education and... um, Continue education, et cetera, so that when I apply for reciprocity in another state, they just simply send the file to the local uh, state, um, um, you know, the board, uh, of place, yeah, board of architecture. That's of right, the place where yeah. you get licensed. Uh, and then it's easy, I can get licensed in four weeks or less. Uh, so, uh, they, from their perspective, they saw my model as being facilitated by what they offer and it's true you know the fact that i had 38 state licenses certainly helped me right um so um i so think you've been able to
0: network through them or they've been able to reach out to you and connect you. well with others? yeah
2: you were talking about how this has grown as a network that was the start then psmj who you referred to uh, did an article on me two years later and as soon as that article came out that's when the national AIA first identified what I was doing as being different and unique and worth putting out there as an alternative way to practice. And so uh, the, the uh, leadership group of the uh, practice management knowledge community of the AIA reached out to me and uh, brought me on board on their leadership group. Uh, I've been on there three years now, and I'm going to chair it uh, next month for, for a year and a half. Um, and I'm the only one on there, by the way, that has a virtual practice, which I think is very interesting. But well, in that, they in that case, I mean, me out there and had me do seminars at national conventions. They had me produce a webinar. Uh, they had me speak at uh, AI or the uh, Chicago uh, Biennale in 2017. And from there, the network has just mushroomed. But I'm not seeing a pool of virtual practitioners. uh, uh, at least nobody's reached out to me and I have never heard of them.
0: Mm. Well, it sounds like
2: you're the trailblazer. I mean, you know,
0: (laughs) that, that it, it, it's, it takes a little bit of time. Um, but certainly you've got a nine year track history in this, but if, if things are starting because of you and you're being brought on to talk about and explain, I mean, it definitely seems like you're in the trailblazer role.
2: It's fun. Let me tell you. Mm. So
0: if you, so let's think back. So if you were to go back in time, um, in assuming the technology was there. So if, well, if you were to restart your practice today, um, would you do anything differently?
2: Uh, In hindsight, I only wish I'd started this practice model uh, at about 40 years of age, right? In my mid-career. Of course, like you said, that's impossible uh, because the internet was not yet pervasive. uh, Because by now I would have expanded to be working all over the globe. I would have been in that aggressive, young mid-career mode, but I didn't start this till I was 58, and I, I, it's grown naturally, and I haven't tried to push it whatsoever, uh, but it's just been that easy. I know that by now, if I had been young and started it, I'd have been all over the globe because there's just been nothing to it. Um, it says, you know, I don't, I don't think that the virtual architectural practice model is the only way we will manage the business of architecture in the future. There are gonna be many new and creative methodologies that'll be developed. But you know, Pete, that's the point. Your project is a design problem. So I would say to other interested practitioners now, remember, out of crisis comes opportunity. They need to study the projected changes that are likely to result once the new normal arrives, create their own response and then go for it, jump. So you're saying, so when you, when you, when you just said your
0: practice is your design problem and that th- there are, there there are crises, there, there are forces on the traditional model that we've known before COVID very much, you know, um, highlighted. Now we've got work from home. We've got a lot of issues and opportunities and um, I, I guess cracks in the armor with the traditional practice. And as a practitioner, as an owner, Look at our practice. It, it, that is a problem. How do we solve the problem to be more resilient, to be more effective, to be more profitable? Is that what you mean by your practices, your design? There, there's problem? a
2: huge, there's a huge irony, and this is not this is not new news in the architecture and engineering business. We're historically really bad business people. And and it's so ironic to me, you know, because architecture and engineers. They they are they're you know they are trained and they're natural problem solvers right well I don't know why uh, designers haven't thought of their business as something that's designable right that's something that is that they can uh, uh, overlay their creativity upon uh, in response to the problem which is whatever the current market situation is at the moment and so you know everybody's interested in me and and this model now because all of a sudden the crisis um, uh created a situation where they had to start working from home um and uh yeah and so that that's that's the answer to your question
0: do you think that's because we're just
2: we're practitioners
0: by nature engineering architects and so businesses second like oh yeah i have to be profitable and make money too? Or do you think <laughs> we're just so, we're, we're, okay, so I was going to say the other was, we're, we're just so busy and consumed no, it's the that first. it's like the, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. And no, so no, no,
2: it's the first. <laughs> it's, it's that we've been trained to focus on the the project as relayed to us by the client and by the environment. Uh, and uh, And we focus on that and then it's, oh, by the way, you know, we need to make money and not go broke.
0: Mm. So if we're so. um, So if I'm an owner um, and I want a virtual practice, um, what I mean, obviously being able to think in a business way. to be able to reimagine business, but what are some of the, the characteristics and traits? Uh, is it just being able to focus on business and, and understanding this as a business first and then be able to sort of assemble my team for practice? What do you think as far as traits and characteristics of someone who would be good at setting up a virtual business?
2: Well, let, let's start with the collaborators first. Uh, the staff working remotely have to clearly understand their roles they need to be self starters. That's very important. Whether they're employees or independent contractors, it doesn't matter. I've always let the needs of the project and the strict project schedule take care of efficiency and uh, profitability for my firm. You know, deadlines are the drivers of marketplace success. That's just from my 40 years of experience. So only now the staff you know, in this virtual model, only now they they manage their own time and I never have to ask them how. My uh, my uh, mantra is just get her done, right? And so now we can talk about the role of the owner. Um, for me, the role of the owner has taken on a new meaning. I now simply think of myself as another node of talent. And believe me, that came after you know, three, four, five years of, of practicing in this manner, I all of a sudden kind of woke up in my head and I went, you know, you know, you're nothing but another note of talent in that diagram that I explained before. Uh, and I have my own, you know, strengths and weaknesses, just the way that I sort my uh, collaborators uh, according to the needs of the project. And, this has been really liberating for me uh, because I never have to try and do it all like a traditional sole proprietor. You know, that's the first thing that happens to to a professional when they put out their shingle is they take on so much debt immediately, uh, you know, uh, leasing space, hiring staff, uh, buying equipment, uh, buying uh, expensive maintenance programs, buying insurance. Uh, that immediately the next step is they have to set up uh, an account with the bank because they're always trying to meet that fixed overhead. And so the first thing they try to do is cut overhead, which means they try and do it all and they work themselves to death. And they're also doing things not, not only do they not like as part of the delivery model, but they may not very, be very good at it. Uh, for example, you would never hire Pete McRae to do a code analysis on a project. I'm terrible at that. And I don't have to do it now, right? And I don't want to do it. Uh, um, And so just like my collaborators, I get to perform the tasks that I both do the best and enjoy the best, and it's just been great.
0: So it seems, I mean, you're just thinking in a whole different way. You're thinking in a network. Like you're thinking of the business, you're thinking about the projects, you're thinking about everything in a network fashion, not sort of a command and control, a hierarchical org chart, and you have to do this and feed the machine. And it's just, you're always thinking networking. It seems like that, that's a mindset shift.
2: All of that other stuff you just talked about is, a, is from the bricks and mortar world, and it's just out the window for me. I never think about any of those things, including any HR issues whatsoever.
0: So, so I mean, so the, the practitioners, so the people that you hire I mean, that you, you said, you know, kind of get, get it done. Um, and your efficiency is, you, you, the, the efficiency is sort of baked within. So each of those practitioners, they've got to understand the, their stuff. Technically, they've got to understand good project management and they've got to have sort of the business skills because they've got, they've got to give you a scope and a fee and you tell them the, the budget and then you accept it, um, is is there, I mean, anything else that they need from a from a skill perspective to be able to do this? Or they're just mid-career or they're just established enough in their business so that they have a technical skill set? okay um, you're, and-
2: you're, you're starting to confuse their business acumen with their uh you know their unique skills in delivering the tasks required by a project. Remember, I mentored them towards owning their own business. Just like me, I guess I had more than they than they uh, have starting out. Uh, but the business acumen to do what I'm doing is pretty elementary, Pete. Seriously, you've heard about it. It's as simple as it sounds. But that comes from me to them, right? And uh, and it's so simple that they don't have to be great business people. They're learning about their own compensation over time. Right, because they're negotiating their own fees, they're they're learning, you know. Well, maybe I should ask for you know more next time. And then if I negotiate with them, and I said, well, that sounds good, except the client is not going to go for an increased, you know, total fee, right? And so we negotiate from there. You follow me? Uh, um, but um, they're they're selected and they're sorted based on what they like to do and what other people have told them that they do the best. Uh, The business side doesn't taint that at all. It just allows them to practice in this fashion.
0: And because you've worked with these people and you have a history with them and you, you don't offer or do you offer a chance to give a proposal? You're just assuming, you know, to some degree, I'm assuming that you're gonna deliver that technical product. I mean, do you review it in a way or do you just have a sense that you know it's right before you you pay them and you're just assuming, listen, if they don't make money on this one, they'll get their business skills better, their ma- management skills better, but that product they delivered to me, how do you know it's, it's right? Because they stamp it?
2: Um, oh, no, 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 no stamping except for the engineers, okay? No, I'm, I'm the architect of record for and hold the contracts with the client and I sign and seal the architectural portion of the project. Okay, uh, they are not, for the most part. I have some licensed uh, uh, project managers, but for the most part, they're not licensed. They're 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 specifically mid-career, um, uh, unlicensed uh, professionals performing the same role they'd pre- they'd perform in a firm. Um, the uh, the 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 fact is that, that the only way this this model, I believe after doing it for nine years, works as well as it does if you're willing to delegate, and I mean delegate, right? You're willing to accept the fact that these people are on the team because they're damn good at what they do. And you just have to believe in their ability. And then I deal with the clients. And so if there's something that, the client doesn't like, or something comes up from the field that isn't quite right, I deal with it. You follow me? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, I always relate back to my team members, right? So they learn over time, just like any firm. Uh, The other thing is I don't undercut my project managers. They have a direct line of communication with the client to manage and run the projects. If I, and I require them to copy me Uh, on all of the email correspondence related to the project. And of course, I asked the client representative to do the same thing. I can't require that. But what I, most of my day is spent monitoring the course of projects. And if I ever see anything that's going haywire in the communication, I'll never go directly to the client. I'll always go to the project manager, express my opinion and give them direction and let them then take it to the client.
0: Right. Which is, you know, a lot of traditional firms and owners and principals. I mean, they're, they're trying to get to that place too. I mean, you know, this is this networked model. I mean, in, in your case, it's a virtual firm and, and a simplicity with business, but layered on in a traditional practice versus there's a complexity of business because you have overhead and staff and all that. But from a, what you're trying to do from a functional perspective and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you're trying to have quality project managers who are selecting within the organization, um, the best talent to produce certain tasks for a, for a scope um, and, a, and a fee within the client schedule. And that might be in the Toledo office or the Baltimore office or the Atlanta office or the Boise office. And so you have an electrical person, a structural and interior design, and the project manager is actually assembling those all together. And in a lot of practice, in a lot of organizations, I mean, they're moving to a practice model and the sort of geo agnostic, and so you do have staff in different areas that have to, you know, they might not even know each other, but they have to perform a certain task in a certain time for a certain fee. I mean, it's almost like your your practice is is similar to a lot of what the industry is moving towards, but you don't have the baggage of the traditional practice.
2: I think it's from you a hit it right on the head. Uh, um, it, it's pretty simple, you know. I use the same contracts I've always used for my entire career, you know, AIA contracts, et cetera. Uh, I contract with my collaborators the same way uh, that I've always contracted with them. only now i I and actually enter an enter into a contract with my architectural team, which I never had done before. Uh, but the you know the the service delivery is exactly the same as any other firm's uh, delivery, right? They're still the same phases to the project. Um, Everything is recognizable by the client as being completely familiar for traditional A&E project delivery. Uh, I just do it without any overhead, like you said. Mm. So
0: so I want to just shift gears as we look to um, sort of close. I, I know from our past discussion, you've had a flood of requests over the last couple of months to, um, you know, from different AIA-affiliated organizations um, and chapters to talk about, you know, what you do in in light of COVID-19? What
2: what are they asking you? Um, Well, it's, like I said before, the AIA took a huge interest after the COVID-19 crisis because all of a sudden, every bricks and mortar firm in the country had to learn to work from home. Uh, So they want to see how someone has been doing this successfully for nine years now. But now, you know, subsequent to COVID-19, I stress automatically that my virtual architectural practice model is much more than just working remotely, even though that's why the industry has shown an interest. I now call it resiliency for architecture firms. You may or may not know that in The beginning of 2020, AI National um, uh, formed a, you know, a once in a generation change as far as the mantra and the focus of architects nationally, and they called it the big move. And it was focused on uh, climate change, energy efficiency, and designing resilient uh, buildings uh, to resist the, you know, the, uh, the outgrowth of climate change, hurricanes, more hurricanes, more violent hurricanes, flooding, um, uh, you know, forest fires, right? Uh, and so I now call this resiliency for architecture firms because the, the fact that the model is amorphous, it, it can grow and shrink with the market economy like an amoeba. Uh, it takes away any stress or fear that overhead will ever outpace revenue especially comforting now that the industry appears to be entering into another deep recession on the heels of the COVID-19 crisis. And this one's going to be the fourth of my career, but it'll be the first one where the firm I'm associated with is simply not at risk of failure. So if the projects are there, the talent to perform the work is contracted and brought on board. If not, no one's let go. No one's fired. No one gets angry. There just aren't any HR issues. I've, told, you know, I've talked about that before. And, and I want to go back to one point that we were starting to discuss before, and, and, and that's what particular skills um, are needed by an owner or a practitioner of this model to be successful. And, and for me, it's definitely out-of-the-box thinking. Now, as an example, the, the recent advancements in technology and big data, they're completely transforming the AEC industry right now. Uh, the workshop that I put together for uh, the A20 AIA National Convention in Los Angeles, which now may have to be delivered virtually since the in-person event's been canceled with COVID-19. Uh, it consists of four one-hour parts the first, of course, is an introduction to virtual practice, the model we've been talking about. Uh, and then uh, there's an hour presentation on virtual design, focusing on uh, experience with artificial intelligence, augmented reality and virtual reality and what that's doing to change design and design presentation for our industry. The third uh, one hour session is on virtual documentation and construction and it and it really focuses on the way that the the building information modeling tools are totally redefining those project phases in our industry they're, they're just completely turning them upside down and then finally, um, we've had lead and medical um, uh, building performance monitoring for some time now. Well, well, today and going forward, our buildings are going to start reporting back to us on how they're performing in the marketplace. In the case of LEED, how they are effectively controlling energy or generating energy or being or truly being carbon uh, neutral. Uh, in the case of medical projects, the Internet of Things is going to Uh, The building itself, because of the Internet of Things, is going to report back to the large medical and hospital firms, and it's going to basically uh, uh, inform them about how to make modifications to make them perform better in the future. So uh, basically, um, I think that owners and practitioners are going to have to embrace the future.
0: Well, it sounds like in order to be successful as a practitioner, we've got to embrace the future. It's coming, but then as an owner, I mean, if you're going to embrace the future and in innovative thinking, you might as well embrace it and do some innovative thinking on your business too. <laughs> Change your yeah. business model.
2: Well, what's so interesting <laughs> is, is it used to be that if you were going to embrace something new, you had to weave it into, you know, hours uh, put into it, overhead, as opposed to, uh, you know, project. Uh, assignment of your time, uh, and so it was always um, addressed with trepidation, right? Uh, because you never knew if it was going to uh, uh, cut profitability to, you know, to such a severe point that adopting any new technology was either uh, perceived as uh, um, non-productive or not worth the effort, right? Uh, Well, as soon as you get rid of overhead, you get pretty light on your feet, and you have the ability to pivot pretty easily.
0: Right. Well, and it's almost like you can't just pivot out of convenience now. I mean, almost with all what you just talked about with AI and the virtual and, and and looking at all the technology changes of buildings as an architect practitioner and also in the engineering. I mean, you've got to be able to pivot. So, in order to you know, if you're bogged down by the overhead and the concerns with billability and cutting ever, you know, compressing profit margins. If you're not willing to invest in this or you can't because of, you know, you haven't adapted your business practice, you're going to be left out because you yeah, have you to know,
2: Architecture and engineering is no different than professional service related companies of any kind. Uh, after the COVID-19 crash course that all of these businesses have gone through in aspects, you know, and, do, and having to adopt some aspects of, of practicing virtually, companies have already stated publicly that they will continue into the future with some version of this model to reduce their overhead since they've discovered to date that they haven't suffered any productivity loss during the crisis that was a real wake up call for companies
0: mm. so if i'm so if i'm a practitioner now if i if i'm a traditional firm leader and i'm struggling not, not just with sort of Ongoing cost increases and some profit compression, um, but I'm struggling with talent attraction and retention, and all the investments I need to make in terms of employee engagement, in terms of really talent development um, and retention issues. How? What do you? How do you think? that I can leverage some of these benefits? I mean, is it just taking on a portion of my talent, you know, in a, in a virtual way? I mean, how, how do you think that there's this model out there, full virtual practice, but I have a traditional practice now. How do you think you could thread that needle to sort of improve your business model, if well, not change I, it outright?
2: I, I hadn't anticipated that uh, exact question per se, but let's, let's use an example of, uh, of a firm Uh, that was a bricks and mortar uh, practice last year in rural North Carolina uh, before the downturn. No way that this uh, sole practitioner could find talent uh, that he could keep on his payroll. And uh, he attended my seminar at uh, the 2019 AIA National Convention. He immediately contacted me, I gave him all of the how to's uh, to create a virtual practice. And today, he just Overnight, he, he abandoned the bricks and mortar practice. He went 100% virtual the way that I had done, and he's now working in multiple states already, uh, and his, uh, his own list of potential collaborators, which I've given him some of them. I've shared some of my library with him, uh, but he's successfully practicing now in multi-states, and he doesn't worry about, you know, who's available to help him locally anymore. Uh, Uh, Just like me, uh, he's got this long list based upon, um, um, you know, the roles these people need to play, and he's building his own library. Um, Also, um, in my case, just because I've all but eliminated overhead, I, I base all my fees on the marketplace, There's no why in the world would anybody think that I would start cutting fees because I don't have, you know, the overhead of other firms, you have to have to get into the mode of being able to let projects go bye bye, uh, rather than, you know, uh, prostrating yourself and cutting your fees just to get a job. Uh, so so I, I simply enjoy signi- uh, significantly higher profit margins on all of my projects than any traditional bricks and mortar practice I've ever been a part of by at least double.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, not, I, I mean it, it, it sounds like and you've been able to, to leverage from a full virtual model, just been able to leverage a lot of benefits, whereas well, it let's, obviously let's the talk benefits about would be less.
2: To me personally. Uh, by far, the biggest benefit has been f- the freedom offered by the model for me. Uh, soon after establishing the practice, uh, I experimented to see if I could run the firm, uh, re- you know, completely remotely, even from my home office. Uh, my wife and I decided that our 60s were going to be our travel decade. And so we tested the idea of traveling the globe while my wife allowed me to periodically tap into readily available Wi-Fi at the hotel uh, for an hour in the morning and an hour of the evening. And we were, we were in far-flung areas like Cambodia or Peru. Um, and I never told anybody from day one that I was going. I never sent out that standard email that everybody sees now, oh, I'm going to be on vacation and I'll have limited access, blah, blah, blah. Please send your, uh, your emails to thus and such person who's covering for me. Uh, we never told any of our clients or our consultant group that we were gone. Uh, and nobody ever knew it, right? Because my role in the company continued from wherever we happen to be connected to Wi-Fi. So, so this year, we gave it the ultimate test. Uh, we went away for an entire month. We were gone for the month of January in New Zealand. And while there, I was able to respond to inquiries for new work, submitted proposals, executed agreements to secure the projects. I was even able to kick the projects off successfully. Uh, Also, while in the Southern Hemisphere, I was able to digitally sign and seal permit sets of other projects for local jurisdictions using what's available now, which is third party verified software. And I think this is going to be the the permit submission method for the future. Uh, not every building department by far has accepted this. Some still require physically stamping and signing drawings, you know, wet wet stamping. But this is really taking on a life of its own quickly. And so as soon as the next generation of plans examiners come into, into uh, uh, building departments uh, that have been used their entire careers to not even looking at printed sets of drawings anymore. Uh, everything's going to be digitally submitted. And now you can do it from anywhere in the world. And so now I know that I can successfully manage my company from literally anywhere.
0: Right. And, and if a wet stamp was necessary, I mean, it's a local print shop printed out if you have your physical stamp with you in FedEx or DHL or wherever you're, you're coming That's how from. we've
2: always operated right. from day one. But I had to be here to go to the print shop and stamp them in their conference room, right? This has finally freed me from that very last physical presence requirement.
0: Hmm. And obviously, adaptable if a client wants you to be physically there. And so, you know, there's probably some adaption depending on the market sector and all that. But it seems like you've really designed the virtual model. It's a lifestyle business that that provides you the integration that you want, cash flow and it provides you the type of projects that you want to work on. So it almost sounds too good to be true, but you're doing it. And
2: remember, Pete, that the change in attitude is not just the A&E professional that has heard about this model. The client's mindsets have changed too. Remember, they had to stay home during COVID-19. They've been used to Zoom conferencing. They've been used to receiving... uh, uh, digital sets of drawings and reviewing them. They've become used to drones uh, doing their site surveys. You see where I'm coming from? So it isn't just the A&E industry that is learning to work like this. The owners are as well. So
0: it's it's not the, the normal time lag of new technology, new thinking. It's really been accelerated forward with, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, have you just want to... When you as the years have gone on and you've practiced virtually, how have the clients responded or they're just you're delivering projects and they just don't know what's happening behind the curtain have 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 they figured this out or have you shared i mean and if you're delivering the projects to some degree it, it probably doesn't matter, but can you speak to that a little bit
2: sure real quick uh in the first nine years of my practice, probably seven years went by, and I never had anything. In, on my website, in my contracts that indicated I was no different than any other firm because I was, when I first started this, I was concerned that I wouldn't be taken seriously as a firm. You follow me? Uh, and so no one ever knew I was practicing virtually at all. Uh, but in the last few years, when quite frankly, Pete, I, I, wanted, I wanted to start giving back to my profession, right? And so when the AI reached out to me and asked me to start giving these conferences, I now have, you know, open, as you're to use your analogy, I've drawn back the curtain, right? So now the wizard is fully exposed, right? Uh, and um, And I'm not afraid of it anymore because like I just said, the clients have just taken a crash course along with all of the rest of us on working remotely. And so it just isn't going to be that big a deal anymore. Mm. So, I mean,
0: as we close, is there anything else you'd like to share or add that we haven't talked about in terms of um, a virtual practice and industry changes overall?
2: Absolutely. So, I think that architects and engineers need to start thinking like entrepreneurs. I used to believe that architects were visionaries in all aspects, professional and personal. But unfortunately, you know, not so much regarding professional practice. Uh, I learned that they are far from early adapters. Uh, um, I've been excitedly sharing my story with my peers since first experimenting with virtual practice way back in 2011 and 2012, you know, amongst my uh, my peers in, in AIA Columbus. But no one thought it was serious. No one saw its potential. Um, uh, it had to be discovered outside of my profession by, the, by NCARB and by PSMJ before and by the American Business Journals, by the way, uh, who published an article about my business. Um, um, they called it, um, See How an Old Guy runs a $2 million practice from his basement. I think that was their title because they were trying to reach out to all businesses. You see what I mean? Not um design professionals. Um, but uh, there have been so many innovative business methodologies that have been created in the last few decades, especially on the heels of big tech and big data, right? Uh, There are all kinds of different ways that people are practicing now. Uh, And it's time for the AEC industry to catch up. Mm. Well, and be able to continue
0: to make the changes as the industry changes at probably even a faster rate. So we have room to, we've got to catch up and we've got to be prepared to sort of continue to move forward with the industry. How, how can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about you and um, McRae architecture?
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to share our website uh, to, I think you're, you're, you're already intend to, to share a bio about my company uh, with your listeners. Uh, they can reach out to me at any time and my preference is by email. So you'll please list uh, for their benefit uh, um, my email address. And if they contact me, I'll happily share with them the articles from the NCARB from PSMJ, J, from the AI Trust, and also, like I said, from the American Business Journal that have been written about my practice, uh, which kind of outlined uh, how to get it up, up and running.
0: Hmm. Well, great. And I will, I'll, I'll include all those in the show notes or links to you, um, as you just mentioned. Uh, but I want to thank you, Pete, for coming on the podcast and sharing your virtual practice model um, and letting us see the future. But I feel odd saying that because it's happening and it's been happening for the last decade or so. So the future is here. Um, and, and you've been able to trailblaze that past, that from the past that we can now use moving forward. So I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing.
2: And uh, thank you, Pete. Um, people that know me will, will say automatically that I don't do much in my life that's not fun. And, and this has been a heck of a lot of fun. So thank you again.
0: Well, excellent. Well, take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsproved.com. That's www.actionsproved.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.